Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hillhead Baptist Church. A special welcome to those who are visiting us today, whether for the first time or the plural times. Uh, so we've just seen some faces of people who've been away for a while as well that day. So let's just take a moment of silence as we prepare to worship God. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. And now let's come to God with our prayer of approach. Let's pray together. We've made the Lord our refuge the Most High, our dwelling place. When we call, the Lord will answer us. Come now, O Lord, to dwell among us and show us your salvation. Almighty God, we seek now to lay aside the cares of the world. You, Lord, are the calm centre. We come to you from our own domestic dramas. For you, Lord, are the calm centre. We come seeking breathing space before another week begins. Because you, Lord, are the calm centre. Help us now to focus on you so that we may discover these words are true, that you, Lord, are the calm centre. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The first reading is Psalms 91. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection of the Almighty, can say to him, You are my defender and protector. You are my God in whom I trust. I will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from all deadly diseases. He will cover you with his wings. You will be safe in his care. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. You need not fear any dangers at night or sudden attacks during the day or the plagues that strike in the dark or evils that kill in daylight. A thousand may fall dead beside you, ten thousand all around you, but you will not be harmed. You will look and see how the wicked are punished. You have made the Lord your defender, the most high your protector, and so no disaster will strike you, no violence will come near your home. God will put his angels in charge of you to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up in their hands to keep you from hurting their feet on the stones. You will trample down lions and snakes, fierce lions, poisonous snakes. God says, I save those who love me and will protect those who acknowledge me as Lord. When they call to me, I will answer them. When they are in trouble, I will be with them. I will rescue them and honour them. I will... I will reward them with long life. I will save them. 
The second reading is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Every high priest is chosen from his fellow men and appointed to serve God on their behalf, to offer sacrifices and offerings for sins. Since he himself is weak in many ways, he is able to be gentle with those who are ignorant and make mistakes. And because he himself is weak, he must offer sacrifices not only for the sins of of the people, but also for his own sins. No one chooses for himself the honour of being a high priest. It is only by God's call that a man is made a high priest, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the honour of being a high priest. Instead, God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. He also said in another place, You will be a priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. In his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God, who could save him from death. Because he was humble and devoted, God heard him. But even though he was God's son, he learned through his suffering to be obedient. When he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God declared him to be high priest in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Well done, Naomi. When I was learning to do readings in church as a child, I was just told, say it confidently and nobody will know because no one actually knows how to do it. And in my last church, I used to say, if you don't know, just say sausages because actually nobody will really notice. Um, Perhaps it would have had to be mutton sausages with an M name. but So Melchizedek is this strange word. I'm just going to do that because the screen has a habit of turning itself off halfway through, which is distracting Uh, So we'll try not to distract you any more than we have to. I wonder how your week has been this week. Overall, has it been good, bad, indifferent? I wonder what things have occupied your mind and your time. Where and how did your faith in God connect with the everyday life of a confused and confusing world? And if we're honest, having seen the news this week, at times quite a scary world. These are important questions to ask ourselves, not just today, and not just part as a short series thinking about prayer, but actually as part of the rhythm of our days. How has my day been? How has my week been? How does my faith relate to what I experience? This is one of the things each of our Bible study groups has spent a little bit of time thinking about, the ancient practice, uh, an Ignatian practice called the examen, whereby at the end of each day we make time to stop and think about all that has happened, all that has been, and simply to offer it to God, good, bad, or indifferent. And then as we have unburdened ourselves, hopefully, we find we are free to rest, to sleep reasonably well, and wake refreshed for the challenges a new day will bring. Psalm 90 that we looked at last week and Psalm 91 both arise from contexts where life was certainly challenging, probably arduous, frightening, brutal, fragile, and often short. 
Psalm 90, if you remember, is attributed to Moses, so comes from a very ancient time. It's addressed to God, and the writer both asks questions of and makes demands to God. It's a very ranty psalm, and we thought last week about the, the rights that we have to rant at God at times. Psalm 91, on the other hand, seems to be a conversation between two human voices, with sections in the first person and the second person as it unfolds. Different translations make different choices on on how to interpret it, but we do see that there are two voices there. Some Jewish traditions suggest that this is a conversation between David and Solomon, but this can't be proven and it's disputed. (coughs) At one level, the two psalms are quite similar. They address similar questions and concerns. But at another letter, level, sorry, they're very different in their purpose and style. If Psalm 90 is an expression of lostness and regret and bewilderment, Psalm 91 expresses confidence and hope. And so it begins very confidently in the first person. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This echoes the opening words of Psalm 90. But rather than um, the writer kind of reminding God that that's what you're like, God, that you are a protecting God, you are our shelter, you are our refuge, this one has it being said from one person to another. So the purpose is slightly different. The psalmist is saying that to live in the house that is God, this image we came across last week, is to find safety and security. Um, Again, the two Bible study groups, I think, have looked at John 15 recently, and Jesus talked about himself as the true vine, and that his followers should abide in him, remain in him, live in him. And so we have this same kind of idea, that living within God, under the protection of God, is the place we want to be. In just two verses this speaker sets the tone for what will follow. To dwell in God is to be kept safe because God is my refuge and my fortress. In verse 3, the second speaker takes over and leads us very rapidly through a whole series of metaphors for what this safety and security might look like. I wonder which ones you you caught as we had the psalm read to us. Let's just take a few moments to look at each of them, trying to think what hints they might have for us about the character of God in whom safety can be found. Uh, This sermon was prepared using the NIV, so the words are subtly different from what Naomi read for us, but the intent is the same. He will save you from the fowler's snare. A metaphor that reduces us to being small birds, vulnerable to being caught in traps deliberately laid to ensnare us. Now, we need to be careful not to overwork this metaphor or any of the others in the Psalms. But there is a sense that we could become trapped (coughs) by circumstances beyond our control and from which we need to be rescued. The psalmist doesn't say God will prevent you from being caught in the snare. 
because that would actually deny us and others the freedom to live our lives ourselves. What it says is, when we get trapped, as get trapped we will, that God will come to our aid and release us. And you can find the same kind of sentiments in other psalms. And of course the words of Jesus that says, God notices even the smallest sparrow that falls in the street. Sometimes we can feel desperately insignificant and tiny and isolated, as if nobody notices and nobody cares. Here we are reminded that in those moments, God cares. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Interesting imagery, this one, because this is a feminine image of God. It's mother birds who protect the young under their wings. When danger looms large, they gather the chicks and hide them from the sight of predators using their own wings to do this. I'm sure you've seen it on nature programs. But as a consequence, the mother bird becomes vulnerable. She can't fly away to safety herself. She risks being attacked from whatever the danger is that's nearby. Can it really be that God does this for us? Do we dare to believe that when life feels threatening and dangerous... God chooses to enfold us and protect us from destruction at painful cost to God's very self. And then all too quickly, another image, and a much more masculine image this time, set in the context of armed combat, where, rather peculiarly, God becomes not one, but two inanimate objects. A shield and buckler. Now, I had to do some research this week to find out what a buckler was, because I didn't know. You probably did, because you're better read than me. But a buckler is a small, round shield that is used in hand-to-hand combat. And the suggestion is that the shield that is mentioned here might be a big one, but would be used perhaps like by Roman soldiers to protect a century, a cohort of soldiers perhaps a bit more like the riot shields our police use today to build a wall to blockade the enemy. What seems here to be really interesting is the control doesn't lie with God, but with us. We choose to use God's protection as a shield, both in our personal struggles, the the buckler, the one-to-one, but also in a corporate act of defence and defiance of the troubles and struggles of the world. Now, I appreciate that some people really don't like military imagery, and that's fine. But there is something about using equipment to protect ourselves. Uh, I was doing some cooking yesterday, and I needed my oven gloves to protect me from the heat of the things that I had been cooking. If you're cycling it's wise to wear a helmet. You probably wear some reflective stuff, and so on and so forth. The idea of God as protective equipment that we can use. 
that's a little bit of a different image because it says we have a responsibility as well. It says we're not just helpless. It says actually, not exclusively, but in this context, God will help those who, who help themselves. Really interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Do we actually ask God to help us in our struggles? Or do we just sit back and say, well, God will look after me? So three very different images. One of us as a sparrow, one of God as a mother bird, and another as God as protective equipment. Do any of those work for you or not? And why do you think that? I wonder what alternatives you would think of if you were coming up with an image of God as protection, perhaps from the Bible or perhaps from your own imagination. That God offers refuge and protection is only part of what the psalmist is telling us here. There's another short list, and again it's full of metaphor, that reminds us of the ways that God's protection may be experienced. You are not to fear the terrors of the night. Now, the commentators suggest that in an ancient context, this expression moves far beyond our ideas of nightmares or sleepless nights, tossing and turning, thinking something over or being afraid of something. It might actually have carried with it a supernatural, even magical connotation, which actually our ancestors in these islands would have shared. The fear that whilst they were asleep, goblins or kelpies or any other kind of slightly naughty sprites would wreak havoc. Perhaps in our day, the terrors of the night might be thieves or criminals who steal or destroy the things that give us a sense of security. Whatever the precise meaning of the phrase, the message is the same. In the night, whilst you're asleep, God will watch over you. Whether that's a really nice night's sleep or a really rubbish night's sleep, God is still watching over you. And then it talks about the arrow that flies by day. What on earth does that mean? Some commentators understood it to refer to sunstroke. Psalm 121, the sun shall not smite you by day. Others think it talks about lightning, so it's a, it's a weather metaphor. Well, maybe it is. It could be read literally as a reference to violence or warfare, or it could be understood as any sharp, piercing experience that comes, well, like a bolt from the blue. Have you had those moments? That totally unexpected, awful moment? However we understand it, when these sudden, unexpected, painful or destructive events arise, God is there. We're not left isolated and abandoned. Sorry, I've got a bit of ice there. It's lovely having ice water, but when it goes in your mouth when you're speaking, it's not so good. We then have a reference to the pestilence of darkness and the plague of noontide, both of which could refer to illness or disease. 
Perhaps the reference to both night and day is meant to distinguish between different kinds of sickness that are worse at different kinds of day. But maybe there are other ways we can understand it. The word plague can be understood far more broadly by analogy to the Exodus story to refer to natural disasters and catastrophes. Here in a disordered world, when individuals and communities are at their most vulnerable, God is still there sharing that experience. Night and day, dark and light, heat and cool, all four seasons, each month, every day, every hour, every moment. When we're so terrified that we can't sleep, when the fear of malevolent, superstitious or supernatural flat powers threatens us, when pain or loss strike us suddenly, whether we are sick, whether there is a catastrophe, in all the frightening and horrifying things in the news, God is with us, sharing the moment, shielding us, protecting us, and hurting along with us. The psalmist here doesn't ask why bad things happen. They are accepted as a fact of life. But it does suggest that the believer of God will not have a carefree, problem-free, disease-free life. It doesn't promise us a garden of roses. What it does say is that even in the struggles, God is there and God is active. The challenge for us to contemplate with this psalm is how it might affect our prayer life. And the way to do that is not to critique the metaphors, it's not to deny the questions that we might have, or even those are but thoughts that arise, because for some of you, as I've spoken, you'd have said, yeah, that's fine, but. It's not denying any of that. But it actually brings us some hints and glimpses into the nature of God. The God who is with us in real life situations where we might feel the need for protection, release or healing. The one who goes about freeing birds risks the wrath of the fowler. The fowler's not going to be too pleased if all the birds are released. The mother bird is vulnerable to the teeth or talons of the predator. And any shield deployed in battle will be scarred and dented. My oven gloves have got quite a few burns on them down the years. We do well to remind ourselves of God's protection. To remind ourselves that God shares in our suffering. To remind ourselves that the consequences of human sinfulness does have a cost. And that that cost is excruciating pain in the very heart of God. Because surely in part this is what Calvary shows us. That God's love for us, that God's desire to protect us, means that in a world distorted by human sin and finitude, God is wounded to the point of mortal death. That something within the eternal, immortal God actually did make the ultimate sacrifice and die. 
that Christ rose is a demonstration that ultimately love wins, that good will succeed, that the eternal God absorbs and overcomes once and for all evil, suffering, sin and fear for always, forever. Our God is a wounded God who in Christ has suffered as we do and dare I say, beyond. The psalm ends with the writer effectively quoting God. Words of promise, hope and reassurance. I will be with you in trouble. I will deliver you and honour you. These words may have originally been a message to one person or to one congregation, but they are words for us to hear as well. Troubles will arise. Struggles will threaten to overwhelm us. But God is faithful. And we can find shelter and refuge in God's love. When I found that uh, I'd been asked to lead the prayers of intercession this morning, it seemed that for the next two or three days, every time I put on the television news... I had a theme to add to what I thought we should be thinking about. I've headed this prayer of intercession for those who feel that life has gone out of control. I was thinking of those folks who lost loved ones in the Hillsborough football tragedy and thinking how much they must have been upset when it was found that the police, over 200 of them, had faked their reports of their part in the incident. I was thinking, too, of the family of that little girl in Wales who was snatched, it seems, by a lonely man, and although they've looked high and low, they haven't yet found that little girl's body. I was thinking, too, because a friend of ours is in hospital just now, having had a stroke, and his life expectancy would seem to be very, very short now. Thinking of his family, who I pastored for nine or ten years in Coates Memorial. There are things that happen to us in life over which we have no control. And so we pray together. I'm going to finish each of my paragraphs in my prayer by saying these words, Lord of all. And I hope that you'll feel you can join me in saying together, assure them that your purpose will finally win through. Let's pray together. Living God, we've come this morning to pray for all of those who feel that they've lost control of their lives, overwhelmed perhaps by tragedy or by relationships which have broken down, others battling against the rigours of old age or wrestling with terminal illness in pain of body or turmoil of mind. Lord of all, assure them that your purposes will finally win through. We pray for the victims of other people's lack of control, those wounded in body or mind, abused children, battered wives, broken homes, victims of burglary, rape or assault, 
Lord of all, assure them that your purpose will finally win through. We pray too for those who struggle to control aspects of their character, lust, temper, greed, impatience, envy, intolerance. Lord of all, assure them that your purpose will finally win through. Living God, give to all near the end of their tether the assurance that you are ultimately in control. To those who are hurt, grant the comfort of your healing love. To the troubled in mind, grant the inner peace which you alone can give. And to those dismayed by their repeat, those dismayed by their repeated feelings of self-control, give, we pray, an assurance to them that your purpose will finally win through. We bring our prayer for the many people who we all know who are troubled and distressed and plagued. And we ask in the name of Christ our Lord that they may sense your presence and draw from your strength, for we bring our prayer together and unitedly. In Jesus' name, amen. And so our worship ends. We leave the safety of this hour to face the challenges of the week ahead. Our triune God goes with us, before us, and behind us, sharing dark and light, sadness and joy, the strong shelter and the still centre in whom we find hope, peace, and welcome. So may we step boldly into this week, trusting in the promises of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.